This morning we're going to be looking at uh, John, well actually we're going to start with John 20. There's several passages we're going to look at in regard to the message this morning. We're going to start in John chapter 20. And Before we do, let's pray and ask that God would bless his word. Father, we're thankful, we're grateful for your grace toward us, especially this time of year. We're so thankful and grateful for the chance that we have to remember and to rejoice and party and give thanks and feast because you gave us your son. And apart from him, we lie in death and darkness. But in him, there is life and life everlasting, eternal life. Oh, Father, help us to see and understand this morning his ministry to us in and through the body. Help us to understand what it means to confess. For we ask this in Christ. Amen. You know, my passion in all that we've been talking about lately is that we would all come to the place where we understand, we come to that place where we understand the fullness and the presence of God. Because until we really, as, as Christians, until we know and we live in the fullness of life that is in Christ, we're not living in the life intended that is in Christ. Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the fullest. And we celebrate this Christmas season, the fact that God sent his son into the world to save us. Not just to save us so that you know one day when we die, we would have life eternal. But he's come that we might even know that life eternal now, here and now. And in light of this, in light of understanding, in in light of realizing what it is we should be realizing and living in the Christian life, we have to understand, as we've been looking at it, what blocks that? What hinders that? What what. What changes the fact that, you know, remember, I remember days when I, my vitality, my life, and my joy in Christ was vibrant and overflowing. And I also know what it's like to be in the dumps. I know what it's like to be in a very dark place. I know what it's like for God to feel 10,000 miles away as if he no, doesn't even exist. But here's the deal. In the Christian life as we've been looking at, Sin has a dramatic impact on a, on a relationship with God. Sin affects us. Especially those secret, unexposed sins that, cause breach, that causes a breach in our relationship with God. And when that happens, we do not experience the fullness of life that is in Christ. And that's for a good reason. So that, that the flags would go up and say, hey, something needs to be done. And I hope we understand that it's not just sometimes we think that, hey, you know, I look at my life and there's, we even did confession this morning and there's no, there's no big sins. But what we've been looking at, you realize, you know, what will hinder this life are the little things that we start to think of as pet sins. Things like indifference and apathy. Things like lust, pride, envy, and covetousness. We can put a Christian spin on all of these and justify them really quick. 
Maybe even we simply neglect to do the things that we know we ought to do. It's not difficult. It's not too hard for us to do that, to have sin that's not being dealt with. And we need to know what it means to repent of these sins. And hopefully, after last week, as we looked at this, what does it mean? What does it mean to repent when we're in situations like this? We have to know, right? Because unless we know what it means to repent, we're not going to, even though we might want to, or we might think we want to. So we need to know what does it mean to repent. And as, after last week, we thoroughly went over this whole idea of what it means to have a change of mind, to turn from the lie and turn toward the truth. And as we turn from the lie and as we turn towards the truth, there we have repentance, but we also know there's freedom because the truth, we shall know the truth and the truth will set us free. But I want us to see this morning that there's a component that often leads to our repentance but that is so much neglected today. Over time, this is, a, this is something that has really been lost. And it's really changed the way we do it. And what is it I'm referring to, talking about? Well, I ended with it last week. This whole idea of confession. And here's why. Here's why it's so important. We all know that Jesus came to bring forgiveness, Right? Jesus came to bring forgiveness. He came to bring cleansing. He came to bring healing. From what? From our sin. This brings a breach. It brings a a death in the relationship with God. He came to restore us back to him. But we don't always connect the blessings of receiving these things, the forgiveness, the cleansing, the healing, through his body, the church. We don't always make a connection. Especially today, Because we live in a hyper-individualistic age. Hyper-individualistic age. If we have a problem today, what is the first thing we do? We Google it. Right? (laughs) Not everybody, but most people. We Google it. Everything we want seems to be a search away. That's how far we have to go. We just have to pick up our phones or our tablets and away we go. And in fact, we don't even have to type anymore. We can just talk to Siri. And sure enough, we can find all kinds of things. And if Google can't help us and if a book can't help us, well, we can always just go online and look for the closest counselor down the street. And then we can check them out on Yelp just to make sure. And if you notice something in all this whole transaction, we run into problems, and what goes from problem to finding our solution doesn't have anybody in between. You want to talk hyper-individualistic, the world has not known anything like we've known today. A closed, isolated world where I can, me and my problems, I can almost take care of anything I want by Googling it. And I have to admit, I'm among the most guilty. Issues, problems, I'm a book reader, and I'm a researcher and a studier, and I love to Google things, and I love to chase things down. And so I can be lost in this whole search and pursuit and really have not talked to anybody about it at all. It's very easy. So what I'm about to say this morning, I think, is a complete slap in the face to all us Googlers. And I want us to understand that 
God has created a means by which we receive. By which we receive from one another. And I don't think he had Google in mind. Jesus, and hear hear the statement. Jesus ministers his forgiveness, cleansing, and healing through his body, the church. Now, this is why I said earlier, we're going to start in John 20. Turn to John chapter 20 and look at verse 23. John 20, verse 23. This is where Jesus is speaking to his disciples after his uh, his resurrection, just before his ascension. That was almost a very bad statement I made. And he says this, John chapter 20, verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any... They are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Did you hear what I just said? I don't know if you find that shocking or not, but who's he talking to here? He's talking to his disciples. He's he's gathered them together, and he says this to them. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, isn't that incredible, the amount of authority that he's just given these disciples of his, his body, the church? That, that somewhat blows my mind, actually. And I don't know if we even understand the ramifications of it. He also says something very similar in Matthew chapter 18, verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now often we don't know exactly what is he talking about there. Binding on earth, bound in heaven, loosed on earth, loosed in heaven. But theologians throughout the years and the church has always understood this to mean exactly what he's saying in John chapter 20. Jesus has given authority to the church. And this this has been understood as the church having authority to discipline in the case of sin and to restore in the case of repentance. But it hasn't really been thought through much in its application in our day-to-day lives in this particular era of the church, especially over the last few hundred years. We pretty much leave it at that. It's a theoretical thing about church discipline. And I, I would bet to say the reason for this is because of Rome and the Reformation, where there was the application was made to mean that you were to confess your sins to the priest and he would absolve you of your sins and then you give you penance to do. And coming out of that, there was an overreaction just, just to, to annihilate it in the Reformation. It's no longer. And then that whole idea is pretty much lost. But the question we have to ask the Protestant church today is how does this apply to us on a day-to-day basis? How do we understand? What, what does this mean, what Jesus is saying about he's giving to his church? If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. How does, that, how does that work out practically? Well, I think to answer this question, we could turn, turn if you will, over to James chapter 5 in your Bibles. James chapter 5. So we're going to look at verse 16 to start with. James 5. In James 5, verse 16, it says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The exhortation here, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So healing, it says, is to come 
to them as they forgive or confess their sins to one another and pray for one another. And why is that? How about because this is how Jesus administers his grace and forgiveness is through his body, the church. Which, actually, if you think about it, it shouldn't seem too strange. It, that, that whole idea of Jesus giving this authority to the church and it being administered through the church shouldn't shake us too terribly bad because if you think about it, if you look throughout Scripture, you almost never find God directly speaking and working with a person privately. Think about this. Whenever God even speaks to his prophets, why does he speak to them? He speaks to the prophets for the people. Almost rare, you just don't find this personal dialogue back and forth with an individual to and for that individual. Even in the case, remember with David and Nathan? David sins, and God doesn't show up to him and speak to him. What does God do? God speaks to David through the prophet Nathan. God speaks to Nathan. Nathan goes to David and ministers to David. So God is speaking to David through Nathan. This is also how God brings the good news of his son to us, doesn't it? Doesn't he? He does this. Not by speaking directly to us, but by speaking through his word, either through the word preached, or someone talked to us, or the word was read to us, or we read the word. It was through others, typically. That's how the good news of the gospel comes to us. And when we need encouragement, what does God do? He brings a brother and sister. When we need rebuke, what does he do? He brings a brother or sister. God ministers to us. Jesus is active amongst us in and through his body, the church. Likewise, when we need forgiveness, healing, and help, what does he do? He works through his people as his means. In fact, when we look at the broader context of James chapter 5, we see this explicitly. Look, start at verse 14. James 5, 14. He says, is anyone among you sick? You should call for the elders. Is anyone among, let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, did you notice what he said there? Call for the elders if you're sick, and the elders will pray over them and anoint them in the name of the Lord. Now, that's significant, that expression. Do you know what that means? as the Lord's representatives, on the Lord's behalf, as the one through whom the Lord will minister and work. Not in their own name, but in Jesus' name. And then the promise is given that if the prayer is offered in faith, as he goes on to say, the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sin, he will be forgiven. As it says in verse 15. So this healing minister, uh, ministry sorry, is administered by Jesus through his representatives, the elders in this particular place. And then just to show uh, further how this ministry of Jesus works in the body, he says this, verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So the, the therefore, if you look at verse 16, the therefore identifies it as the conclusion to what he's just said. Which means 
This is why you should confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, because this is how Jesus heals you. This is how Jesus ministers to you. So James is explicit that if, we're to conf- if we confess our sins to one another, this is how we receive Jesus' healing through his body, the church. Yet it would be easy to say, which I have said so often, that this confession is only referring to people that we sinned against. So yes, we're supposed to confess our sins to one another, but not just any old one another. What we're to do is to confess our sins to the person that we sinned against. Now that's true, by all means, absolutely. But I think they, they still need to be confessed to others. There's plenty of sins that don't involve others necessarily that we still need to confess to others. For example, I could have lusted in my heart and then only confessed to God, which is obviously important and necessary, but I've not been willing to confess to anyone else. And why is that? Because I'm afraid of what they might think of me, right? And my pride desperately wants you to have a high opinion of me. But you want to know something? Because I didn't confess to someone else, I don't even have to address the sin of pride or the fear of man. They don't even get touched. And as long as I keep it this way, those sins never get confessed or dealt with in a lot of cases. And because we're so so removed from this whole idea of confessing sins to one another, we completely miss, I think, the cultural context in which so much was written in the New Testament. And I want to argue and I want to try to show you that actually confession to one another, confession to others of our sins, is something that was actually assumed in the early church. If if we're to look at the passage of 1 John 1.9, for example, which we often quote in our confession of sin, this says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you notice something in there? It doesn't say anything about confessing to others, does it? On the other hand, it doesn't say anything about confessing to God. It just says, if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, what should we assume there? That's the big question. What's assumed? We often assume today that it just means merely to God. Now, here's something we have to understand. That there are historical clues and there's historical precedent for them just assuming that this is actually what's going on here is that this is something that you would naturally do with, your, with other fellow Christians. You confess your sins to one another. An example of this might be just to see the cultural assumption of this time. We had read for us this morning Matthew chapter 3. In verse 5, it says, John here is preaching repentance. He's not preaching confession or anything like that. He's preaching repentance. But what do they do as a response to his preaching? In verse 5 of Matthew chapter 3, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all that region about the Jordan were going out to him, to John. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. And then this one little statement baptized him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. It says, confessing their sins almost as some coincidental side note. It just, there it is. doesn't give any explanation for it. 
and just moves on. And a similar statement is made in Acts 19, verse 18. Here is the record of what's happening in Ephesus. Paul is turning the city upside down. He's proclaiming the gospel, and they're repenting. But something significant happens, and there's one sentence that says this. Also, many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And in this particular case, those who involved in witchcraft were also burning their stuff. But just a statement. And when you see statements made, historical statements, often you could say, what kind of assumptions are going on here? That it, does, it feels no need to explain anything. It does, I, I would like a, some explanation, wouldn't you? It doesn't give it. It just adds almost like a side note, yeah, this is what you do. This is how it works. We can see also through historical testimony that this is actually ingrained in, in their thinking and how they function some of the early church fathers have written some, some things, and some indirectly, about confession and how it's functioning. I'll give you a couple examples. One is from uh, St. Irenaeus of Lyons in 180 AD. He wrote this, The Gnostic disciples of Marcus have deluded many women. Their consciences haven't been branded as with a hot iron. Some of these women make a public confession, but others are ashamed to do this, and in silence, as if withdrawing from themselves the hope of the life of God. They either apostatize entirely or hesitate between the two courses. So he's, he's talking in his shock about how they're conducting themselves and how they're, not cho- they're choosing not to confess their sins publicly. Another example is Tertullian of Carthage in 200 AD said this, Regarding confession, some flee from this work, as being an exposure of themselves, or they put it off from day to day. I presume they are more mindful of modesty than of salvation, like those who contract a disease in the more shameful parts of the body and shun making themselves known to the physicians, and thus they perish along with their own bashfulness. Thinking, wow, they have a, he has a completely different understanding of confession and how it functioned in the church at that time than we do. And then there's St. Basil in 330, to 379 A.D., who stated, It is necessary to confess our sins to those to whom the dispensation of God's mysteries is entrusted. Those doing penance of old, now he's referring to those doing penance, those repenting of old, is kind of another way to translate it, which meaning in the early church prior to him, are found to have done it before the saints. So now he's remarking on what their practice was historically that he, that he knows about. It is written in the gospel that they confess their sins to John the Baptist, but in Acts they confess to the apostles by whom they are all baptized. And there are several other church fathers that I read about this, and, and many of them, it's all along the same lines, how confession is just a part, this public confession is understood. When they use the word confession, they don't think of it in terms of private confession between you and God alone and never have anyone else involved. No, they thought of it in terms of confession by the very nature of the word. What's assumed is that when you confess your sins, you confess them to someone else. So I think this paradigm is really, it's the assumption upon which the Apostle John writes his epistle. So now, if you have a cultural assumption, and this is just what's happening culturally, when John says this in 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, what is, what's assumed there? 
Not that we would just do it privately before God, that we confess our sins to one another. And this lines up squarely with James, doesn't it? Which we just looked at. James actually is very explicit about it. James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So the cleansing and the healing and the forgiveness seems to be given to the, to the church body it's, and it's administered as we confess our sins to one another. To f- further understand why this is, let me, I, what I'd like to do is try to help us see the relationship between confession and repentance. Because last week I tried to make it clear that it was through repentance that we are set free. Now, this might give the impression that repentance is the only thing needed and that confession seems like an extra step that isn't a part of repentance. But what we need to understand is the true nature of sin and how confession is often the means through which we come to understand how it is that we repent. Because when we confess our sins before our brothers and sisters in the church, We expose the very thing that often trips us up and has us blinded. And the beautiful thing about how God works and ministers his grace through the body is that when we do confess our sins to one one another, it isn't uncommon that he gives them light to see what we can't see. Because you know what happens when we get caught up in some sins or when we do sin? We often become blinded to it. We don't see clearly. We're kind of, we can get ensnared. But when we confess it to others, they often can see what we can't see. And God designs us this way so that we need one another. We can't isolate and go off and find ourselves in a little corner doing our own little thing. We absolutely and fundamentally need each other. This is, I think, also why in Ephesians chapter 4, what else is assumed in Ephesians chapter 4? Remember how it says we're to minister to one another? And we're to speak the truth and love to one another. Well, we can't speak the truth and love and minister to one another if we don't know the area of ministry. I think what's assumed there is a body that actually practices confessing to one another. I've been reading a lot of books lately about this whole topic, about repentance and confession and dealing with sin. And most of them are written by people in gospel ministry who are overwhelmed by the amount of Christians who come to Christ but have so many unresolved issues in their lives. Their sanctification is stalemated. They were easily addicted to all kinds of things. They were hearing crazy voices in their head. They were depressed, and they seemed to have constant struggles with the most basic of things. And in order for these people to get free and start moving forward, they had to go back and deal with sins that hadn't been confessed before. In, a, in one book, the pastor who had worked with hundreds of people on issues, on these kinds of issues, discovered something he wasn't really able to explain. He found that it wasn't enough for people to go through a searching personal inventory, look at their lives, have God search their hearts, and just privately confess their sins before God. He found that there was a dramatic difference, a significant difference, between the people who confessed out loud and those who just went alone and did it privately, silently. He really wasn't, and he wasn't, it said he wasn't able to put his finger on it. 
as to why, but he completely changed his practice as a result. I'd actually like to suggest that what he stumbled upon was what God is talking about in his word about this ministry of confession to one another. And confessing out loud and publicly has an impact. The people needed to openly confess their sins and repent of them. And when the counselor was confessed to, he could guide them into the truth. And then they could experience God's cleansing as a result. Now, it's important to understand that these are not isolated cases I'm referring to, actually. As, as the more and more that I read, there are thousands upon thousands of Christians who have gone to counselors of all kinds for all kinds of issues. And in some cases, they were extreme issues. And the difference maker, the difference maker in all these, in all of them, is confession that leads to biblical repentance. That's the difference maker. Confession open public confession to the people they're working with that leads to biblical repentance. They needed to make it plain, the sins they committed, or, in many cases, the sins that were committed against them. And then, as a result, then they needed to reject the lies that they were believing as a result of this and believe the truth and turn from this and have have themselves cleansed, washed, forgiven, have it all taken care of, and then they're able to move forward. And through these ministries that would lead them in repentance from the lie to the truth while they confessed it out loud to others, you know what happened? In almost every case, you find that Jesus sets them free. And the only time they're not effective is when people are hiding things or they're insincere. But as long as they're sincerely confessing their sins and then they're walking in repentance, turning from lies and believing the truth, Jesus was setting them free. I want to give you a story that illustrates, this is a real true story that illustrates what I'm talking about. It's a story of a lady named Cindy. She said, my entire life has been one of intense inner conflict as well as physical, emotional, and mental pain. I have lived with constant fears, recurring nightmares, continual harassment from inner voices, and an an obsessive fear of death. Though I am a committed, obedient Christian, I was convinced Christ would certainly reject me at the gates of heaven. A year and a half ago, I found that I could no longer hold the pieces of my life together. I sought counseling, and God began to provide people to minister to me and instruct me in the truth. I gained strength as I began to believe my position in Christ and as a child of God. Then last summer, God allowed me to remember the horrible ritual abuse in my past, and the battle became much more intense. I was certain that only Christ could deliver me from this internal hell. So she went to get help. And after several hours of reliving the horrors of my past and forgiving the 22 people who had sexually abused me, I was finally free from Satan's bondage, praising God that he went before me and defeated Satan at the cross. I'm so happy that I'm free and I have, found, I have a sound mind. I no longer have to hide the hell inside with a happy Christian facade. And you know what? Here you have a common through line. I know that's just a very extreme case. That, um, but there's secret private lives that nobody could tell. Like on the outside, if you were to look at this Christian Cindy, everything looked just, just like your life. Everything looked just fine. This was something that was, that was there, but nobody knew about. And she thought she could just carry on and continue on without, 
you know, not knowing and understanding that she needed to be, de- be healed from that. She needed to deal with that stuff. But the through line is this. There was a confession of the sin done and a confession of the sins that were done to her. And then there was the teaching of the truth. And so that she would stop believing the lies. This is the lies you're believing in regard to it. This is the truth. And as she see the lie, saw the lies and she saw the truth, she turned from the lies and she believed the truth. She was set free. And this is, this is the common through line. However, I want to say something. Just clarify here. When I use the word free, there she's free and it's gloriously free. Don't ever think it's to, that she never experiences sin again, that she never stumbles again, that she never finds herself in dark moments again. That's not what I'm talking about at all. It's not a freedom where you have it and boom, it never leaves. This is a walk that we all have to go through. And we will find that in our lives we stumble in many ways. But when we stumble, what do we do? Do we want to have that like an anchor around our leg that ensnares us and causes us to continually stumble and to, and to almost never know the grace, the peace, the joy of the Lord, the freedom that he's offered us? No. What we're to do in these times when we stumble and we fall and we find ourselves in sin, what should we do? We actually need to get back to confessing our sins to others and then repenting by rejecting the lies about them and believing the truth and moving forward. And then walking in the freedom that is ours in Christ. But then when we stumble, what do we do? Repeat process. Right? That's what we do. But what do we tend to do today in this hyper-individualistic age we live in? We tend to Google it. We tend to go get a book. We tend to do all the things that avoid what it is that Jesus wants to do for us through the ministry in the body. And I'm convinced today that you look around the church landscape and so many people are messed up because they leave these private lives that nobody knows about. Nobody has to know about. It's all good. I've confessed this morning. We had a confession of sin. And I, hey, I got on my knees and I confessed my sins to God. It's all good. What I'm coming to realize And I have to admit to you, this is startling to me and shaking me because I'm I'm realizing this is not my practice. And what I come to realize is that, you, you know what? I live an incredibly private life. There's a whole lot going on in here that you don't know about. And there's a whole lot going on in you that I don't know about. In fact, maybe nobody knows about. And this is where we've come to. People privately struggling, but never seem to get, get, get past it. Never seem to live in the freedom and the joy that is in the fullness of life that is theirs in Christ. And yet they're just constantly struggling and stumbling and never, no one ever knows about it. And they're always looking for the three keys or the six tricks or the, you know, the, the, the ten top tools. We're always looking how to, like how do we get this? How do I overcome this? We'll go to a conference. We'll go to a seminar. We'll hear a sermon. And we're going to try to, to put things into practice. And, and we find out oh, that doesn't really work. What's next? I've got to admit, this is like, wow. This is huge. 
Because Jesus intended us to minister to one another and walk in the light together so that we could see where we're all at honestly and minister grace and peace and minister the gospel. We could speak the truth and love to one another's lives. But don't you like Googling it a lot better? I do. You know, when I have the option between Googling it and telling you about it, there's no question what I like better. No question. Because you know what? Hiding and covering up, you know what that's like? That feels safe to me. That's so much safer, isn't it? It's, it's so much easier. But we're going to look at the next time in the pulpit is that we're going to see the connection between this confession and why it is that God actually used this powerfully in the life of his church. And that so much of what we're not experiencing, the fullness of God's presence and the power of God amongst us, is really lying right here. Because we're hiding, we're covering up, and we're living these incredibly private lives that we want nobody to know about. And therefore, we struggle, make little to no progress, and find ourselves constantly tripping over the same things. Because we have not understood the necessity of confessing our sins to one another so that we can pray for one another that we might be healed. And I'm convinced as I begin to study this more and more, that in 1 John 1, 9, that we, we, we think that we've confessed our sins and that, hey, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But so many of us don't experience that cleansing because we've missed what's assumed in the passage. We really need to be confessing to one another. And I'm hoping that next time I, I, I'm back in the pulpit because I'm out for two weeks and Mike's in, is that when I come back, I'm going to make that crystal clear and hopefully highly motivate us to all the incredible goodness and blessing that comes from it. And once we see that, hopefully we're more encouraged to take a step. Because this is kind of a culture that we really ought to, we need to be cultivating at Redeemer Church. Open, honest confession with one another. Well, we're not trying to hide anything. And we know each other and we minister grace and peace in the gospel to one another. And then we're healed, we're cleansed, and God's presence is powerfully amongst us. Amen. Father, we're so thankful, so thankful that you give us your word and you guide us into all truth and that you call us to walk and live in the light and not in darkness. And so, Father, as we seek to walk and to live in the light and not in darkness, I pray that you would open our eyes to see this powerful and wonderful ministry that we so often neglect, that we would be bold confessors, hiding nothing, and receivers of your abundant grace and goodness. For we ask this in Christ. Amen.